Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to On Brand with Alf and me, Rory Sutherland. Each month, I'll be talking to household names as well as challenger brands about success, challenges, and future opportunities in the advertising market and media industries. And today, I'm delighted to be joined by Emily Van Popperinka, co-founder and CEO at Oddbox. Now, this company was launched in 2016 in an effort to save fruit and veg from going to waste simply because the produce was, as they put it, wonky. Its first step was to create a sustainable box subscription service, buying imperfect and surplus fruit and vegetables direct from fresh produce suppliers and growers for a fair price, before delivering them to homes and offices for 30% less than other similar services. To date, Oddbox has delivered an amazing 5 million boxes to UK homes, saving over 34,000 tonnes of food from going to waste. Plus, the company donates up to 10% of its produce to charities fighting food poverty. As fruit and veg supplies in Britain is a pretty hot topic, I'm delighted to welcome Emily to the podcast. So, Emily, welcome. Um, Can you tell us, as we always ask, um, obviously, I I think your listeners will soon detect that you're French, albeit with a, I suspect, a Dutch surname. Um, how did you end up starting a British company? Yeah. So thanks for having me on the podcast, Rory. But uh, yeah, um, I'm I'm indeed French. I'm from the north of France, so my uh, surname is uh, uh, Flemish surname. Ah, so that's uh, that's where it's coming from. So I uh, I grew up in the north of France, and my grandparents on both sides were actually uh, potato farmers. So uh, I didn't know about the issue of waste until uh, seven years ago. And so I moved to the UK uh, uh, 13 years ago uh, for work. And I was amazed by the fact that I could I could get strawberries in winter and I could get any types of fruit and veg uh, at all time of the year. And that was quite different from what I was experiencing, I had experienced in France. And then I worked uh, in India for several years. And there, again, uh, you get mangoes three months in the year, but you can't get them at other times of the year. And so uh, that amazement uh, quickly turned to disappointment because these strawberries in winter, they didn't really taste that great. They were obviously imported from Spain or North Africa. They had been picked unripe and they kind of lacked that sweetness from ripening on the plant. And uh, growing up in the countryside, we had strawberry uh, plants in our garden. And so I kind of knew 
what it tasted when you picked them up uh, in the summer directly from the plant. And so at that time, I was frustrated, but I didn't really know what to do about it. And uh, fast forward, uh, five years later, we went on holidays to Portugal. And there you do the shopping at the local market. We tasted amazingly tasty and juicy tomatoes, which looked uh, ugly. Uh, and that brought me back to thinking about that uh, disappointing strawberries experience. And it made me question why uh, I couldn't get such tasty tomatoes in London. And so uh, uh, when kind of, I started looking into uh, the uh, food supply chain, that's when I realized the extent of food waste. And at the same time, there was a, a campaign by a French supermarket on uh, wonky fruit and veg. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, that's, uh, that's amazing that uh, people don't know about this issue. People don't know that up to 40% of the food we produce is wasted just because it doesn't look perfect. And uh, potentially there's an opportunity to do something about it, to uh, actually uh, provide these produce which are perfectly good to uh, consumers, but also um, uh, tell them about the issues in the food supply chain and uh, try to communicate or educate them about uh, what I had learned myself. That was the, the beginning of, of Oddbox. Because it is very, very interesting, I have to say, in that um, uh, you have, um, uh, I suppose you have a case where this quite often happens in business and in general capitalism, which is there's a particularly decisive moment in the purchase cycle where the attractiveness of something really matters. Now, you might argue there are some cases where the attractiveness of fruit um, does matter. You know, if you're preparing food where the aesthetics are absolutely everything, but that's probably 10% of the time. You know, uh, if you're making soup, obviously the shape of a vegetable is, by definition, completely irrelevant. And yet, because this... Because the appearance of these things is ridiculously decisive at point of purchase, it gets completely overemphasized. I always make this point about camping equipment, okay? That whenever you buy something like a sleeping bag, obviously people at the point of purchase are massively impressed by a really small sleeping bag. The result of that is that every time you use your sleeping bag, it's almost impossible to get it back into the container because the container is made absurdly small just to make it look good at the point of purchase. When actually, when it comes to actually the point of consumption, you'd really rather have bought a slightly larger sleeping bag, which you can actually roll up and put back in the case. And so these kind of things seem to be quite persistent. And what I I didn't realise until I actually got involved in this podcast is the extraordinary percentage of waste, which is purely on aesthetic grounds, not on taste, not on quality. Actually, there's possibly a little bit of an inverse relationship, I think, between taste and quality, uh, as there has to be a trade-off, if you think about it, if you're optimising for appearance. Yes. but And with strawberries, I, I also have a complaint that this particular breed called El Santa, which is not a particularly nice yeah. kind of strawberry, but maybe is particularly well-suited to growing on polytunnels or something. Uh, it's a very, very boring breed of strawberry, mm. but it seems to disproportionately predominate. Um, and so you spotted 
what is actually you know, a beautiful example of capitalism in the sense that you effectively spotted an asymmetry which you could quite rightly exploit to the benefit of everybody because it's the benefit of growers. It's emphatically the benefit of consumers and the benefit of the planet. Yeah, that's what that's what we say. Yeah, it's a win-win uh, actually for the growers, for the consumer, and for the planet. So, for the growers, this is pretty much incremental money. What what were they doing with sort of wonky fruit and vegetables before? It would end up in pigs or something, would it? Or so it yeah, it depends. So um, mostly uh, growers don't want to throw away any of the produce that they grow. So uh, they'll always try to find an outlet for the produce. So it, uh, it might be that they are able to sell it at the wholesale market or for juicing or processing um, uh, at kind of, uh, quite low margins or uh, at a loss. Or it might go to animal feed or anaerobic plant, so which make energy. Or it might be left in the field because it's just not economical to uh, harvest it. And in that case, they kind of say uh, it's fertilizer, though uh, um, the produce was never never meant to be left in the field. No, no, that, 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 that's, it. that's a clear-cut case. What you may not know is you're actually uh, in the footsteps of one of the great advertising men of the 20th century was a J. Walter Thompson copywriter called um, James Webb Young, who wrote various books, A Technique for Producing Ideas. And when he retired, he retired to an apple farm okay. in New Mexico. Now, New Mexico is at quite high altitude. And the thing he was beset by was the fact that before the apples reach ripeness, ripeness there'd typically be a hail mm, form, yep. storm. And this would cause the apples to be pitted yep. a bit like a golf ball because they were hit mm. by big lumps of ice. And so he did the classic advertising thing, which I'd call alchemy, which is actually turning a weakness mm. into a strength. And he sold them through mail order in the United States in the 1950s okay. as genuine New Mexico hail pitted apples and charged a premium for the wonkiness. Okay. And, and that's funny because uh, actually the first apple crop, uh, uh, apple grower that we worked with, we rescued one of their ale damaged uh, apples. So the ale, um, kind of, uh, in, there's mainly ale is around March, April. So when the apples are tiny uh, and so it got pitted when they are really small and when they grow, uh, it impacts uh, the skin aesthetics, but it doesn't impact at all the quality. But uh, that grower, uh, we help them uh, sell all the apples that a retailer didn't want because they had this uh, ale damage. So that happens as well in the UK. And I also suspect you may be benefiting from a, a kind of reverse heuristic, which is people now see uh, imperfection in the appearance of vegetables as actually, or fruit for that matter, as being evidence of taste. In the sense that one of the things we've probably learned is that, uh, you know, I don't want to offend your near neighbours to the north, but those very perfect Dutch tomatoes are pretty goddamn boring if you contrast them with the, uh, you know, slightly bulbous and unusually shaped Sicilian type. And um, uh, so I, th I think actually you probably will benefit from a kind of placebo effect where people have come to associate stranger looking fruit with a better taste. Because yeah. patently, if you are, if you are optimizing for appearance, you aren't optimizing for taste. Yeah. And there is going to be a trade off mm -hmm. present there. 
which I think is really, really interesting. Yeah, and and also obviously, uh, we uh, we work with suppliers who sell to uh, retailers. So uh, what we get is not necessarily uh, don't necessarily taste better. However, uh, surplus. So we don't only take. Uh, out of specs or what is called as wonky, it's also a lot of surplus. And there's more surplus when something is in season. And when something is in season, it obviously tastes better. Of course. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. How many retailers cotton on to this and have started doing the same thing themselves? Because it would only take, it, it, it would seem an intelligent thing to do. It's been, uh, even when we started, uh, Asda was doing Wonky, uh, wonky veg boxes. There's always been different categories of produce. Um, typically, they don't always call it wonky now uh, because it's more trendy. They call it kind of the wonky, the misperfect. It was always the uh, lower class or lower qualities. It's always been there. Um, it's lower margin, so it's not in the retailer's interest to promote these uh, cheaper um, uh, alternatives. So their fear is it cannibalizes the... Um, yeah. yeah, you see, retailers could learn a trick there because you could actually promote it as a virtue and actually charge the same. And But the that's, that's where it's a challenge for us and it's a challenge for them and it's a challenge for the industry that by selling them for cheaper, they've made it appear as if it was lower quality and therefore it should be cheaper. And, uh, and in that sense, they don't want to promote it too much because it cannibalizes the higher priced produce. And to your point, there's, there's no reason why it should be sold for cheaper. But that's always the question that we get asked. Ask uh, why um, uh, what we sell is not so much more uh, cheaper because uh, we're rescuing it and because it's wonky. Um, and also, uh, the challenge for a retailer is that if they promote it too much, they need to maintain consistency of supply. And um, uh, there's not always consistency of supply in terms of out of specs because growers are trying to kind of grow in specs. And so uh, uh, often, if they, uh, if they promote it too much, they end up having to put uh, class one produce uh, in the uh, class two, the wonky uh, produce. And therefore, they are uh, damaging their margins even more. This is absolutely fascinating. I, I understand you, you, you deliver just, just a, I don't know if you have a discount code for the listeners, if anybody wants to sign up. But you can deliver the box. There are, what, three or four sizes of box. There's, there's fruit-only mixture of fruit and vegetables. Yes. And I think a, a vegetable-only box, yep. if I'm right. So we've got uh, three sizes, so four sizes, extra small, small, medium, and large. And in uh, veg-only or fruit and veg, and then we've got a fruit box as well. And um, you, intriguingly, to reduce your carbon footprint, you deliver overnight. Yes, like the milkman. So the box will be left outside your house, typically, and you'd wake up in the morning rather like milk, and there'd be a box. So how, how do you deliver? You're obviously not using one of the main um, uh, courier companies. Yeah, so... uh, uh, what, what's your delivery mode? So we use a small delivery partner. The reason why uh, we deliver overnight wasn't necessarily something that we uh, thought at the start, uh, let's deliver overnight. Um, I was working full-time while starting Godbox, and initially we were delivering uh, early morning on Saturday, and then as we grew, we didn't have time to pack 
on Saturday morning. So we thought, let's pack on Friday night after work. And uh, we were finishing the packing around midnight, one o'clock. And I didn't really fancy waiting till uh, five, six in the morning for, the, uh, for drivers to come and deliver the boxes. So we thought, why can't they come at uh, midnight and then they deliver overnight? It's going to be a lot faster for them um, because there's less traffic on the road. And therefore, it's also yeah. uh, more eco-friendly. And uh, initially, it started with... Uh, uh, freelance drivers, one of which then got some uh, some other drivers, so drivers who were also working for uh, all the big logistics company, and uh, it ended up with uh, one of our first drivers setting up uh, a company to uh, deliver for us. Wow. Okay. So you have your own effectively bespoke company. Yes. Does it have? Do, do you? Does it supply any other people now? Are there other people who deliver overnight? Um, no. So. Uh, is in discussion with other people to deliver overnight, but where is main customers? Ah, interesting. Yeah, that's fantastic. Because actually it makes... Per One of my arguments, funnily enough, in favour of locker delivery is that it makes it much easier to deliver either very late or very early to residential areas. And there isn't just the question of environmental sustainability. There's the whole question of uh, the, you know, the only category of road traffic that's significantly increasing is the delivery yes. van. And it gets to a point where, you know, particularly at certain times of the day, it can't be much fun for the drivers. And um, it's not much fun for other road users either, for that matter. So this is fascinating. So he's effectively started this business of late night deliveries. Do you have any trouble with disturbing people or people wondering what the van is at three in the morning? So no, somehow our drivers are very good at kind of uh, being quite quiet. Uh, and we have uh, uh, people who have dogs and say, uh, our dog don't even notice. Uh, so, so, <laughs> <laughs> so, The dog that didn't bark <laughs> in the night. That's a Sherlock Holmes uh, So we have, we have sometimes Lovely. instances where uh, uh, it's not uh, uh, necessarily ideal for a box to be left if if it's on a high street, then uh, it's not ideal, but it's not ideal to do daytime deliveries either if people are in the office. Mm. Um, so uh, the, we don't feel that kind of the disadvantage of night delivery outweighs the benefits. There's a lot more benefits. Uh, and for people, uh, it's quite nice that they open their door in the morning and their box is there. Mm. So again, like, uh, like your milk, uh, and they say, uh, for people who have children, they say uh, uh, their children run to the door uh, in the morning to uh, kind of get the box, look what's inside. And so it's also a nice way to uh, educate children about uh, produce, where produce come from, and, um, and kind of have that joy as a family to open the box. And actually, the randomness of it is weirdly an advantage, yeah. eh? Because it encourages you to think of doing things that you wouldn't otherwise yes. do. There's that element of surprise which bizarrely makes the thing more... Uh, Fun enough, that goes back to an old ad guy called Claude Hopkins, who said that in many cases, a mystery gift uh, is actually a better promise than a specific gift, because the element of surprise actually adds to the both the anticipation and the enjoyment. Yeah. But also there's that wonderful choice reduction in it which is that actually, you know, it nudges you into doing something, maybe making a soup or something similar or a juice that you haven't tried before. Yeah. And and, and actually discovering, uh, you know, combinations that you wouldn't have necessarily thought of. So, I mean, I think, I think 
you'll you probably find that the level of waste within households is pretty low, is it? Because people learn to be just more versatile. So I think it depends. And uh, so that's for people who are quite experienced and confident cooks. Mm. Not knowing what comes in the box uh, is great because they uh, pretty much know what to do with any fruit and veg they get. And um, yeah. they, uh, they are used to kind of uh, making a roast and swapping different types of veg in their roast, uh, making a curry and being quite creative and resourceful in terms of how they cook. For less confident cook, Outbox can prove to be a challenge, and that's that's in some ways our bigger biggest challenge in terms of uh, being more mass market and attracting people to uh, our mission around food waste. Um, and that's something that uh, we're working on in terms of how we can offer uh, a bit more customization for people who've never cooked a cabbage. Um, because it can it can be quite a challenge um, to receive a big cabbage when you've never cooked one and you don't know what to do with it. And then it stays at the back of your fridge and it becomes food waste and that goes against our ethos. Do, do you provide any kind of information with the, um, the, the the veg or cooking tips? Have you Have you thought of including content or YouTube for that matter? Yes, yeah, so from the start, we've been putting a letter in the box and uh, it's uh, it on the front part, there's a story about the produce, there's a story of the about the grower or there's a story kind of about the industry and what's happening in the industry. Uh, then we actually have shapes of the different types of produce so that people know exactly what's in the box, what? uh, especially <laughs> if there's something that they've never seen before. So for example, Jerusalem artichokes, uh, some people thought it was ginger and it's true. It looks very similar. And if you've never had Jerusalem artichokes, it can be quite confusing to see uh, several uh, kind of roots or kind of ginger type roots. And then we provide uh, recipes and we also provide tips in terms of what needs to be used first, um, how long it needs to be, uh, it can be stored for, where it needs to be stored, uh, and what can be frozen. So a lot of, and then we've got links to uh, additional recipes on our website. And this would work, I imagine, pretty brilliantly for anybody who either has a soup maker um, in particular. Yes. Um, the other thing I've noticed that um, Gusto is starting to do is they're starting to do air fryer recipes. Mm. Because that seems to be an interesting technology. I've been evangelizing the air fryer for about the last 10 or 15 years. Yeah, it's the latest trend. Yeah. But it's actually, I mean, it is, it, I mean, the funny thing is, it's basically a miniature convection oven, but um, it's a bit more than that, actually, in fairness. But um, it's, it's, it's really interesting in that that will actually provide people with relatively convenient high-speed ways of preparing tray bakes and things of that kind. In 2020, Oddbox became B Corp certified. Why was that important? And what do you believe are the benefits for a company to become B Corp certified from a business perspective? Yes, so, uh, B Corp is a certification which not only covers our environmental uh, kind of footprint, but it's also about governance. It's also about how we uh, um, uh, treat our employees. It's also about how we engage with the community. So it's quite broad in terms of what it covers. Um, and so it's about people, profit and the planet. And for us, it was uh, more to have that validation 
external validation that we were doing things right. Um, we uh, didn't want to be in a position where uh, we could be called out uh, for uh, any greenwashing and uh, uh, it's now quite a well-known certification. It's not easy to uh, become a B Corp and it's quite a lengthy process. And the, uh, the main thing about B Corp is that it's not a one-off certification. Uh, every uh, B Corps need to recertify every three years and there's a commitment that uh, we need to improve on the scores that we had three years ago. And in addition to having to uh, uh, do an impact report. So we're, we're just releasing our impact report for uh, 2022, our commitment for 2023. And so it's uh, there's there's a lot of requirements for uh, to uh, explain what we are doing and to uh, to improve to do more. If, if I'm right, I think the B Corp also means that in terms of sort of fiduciary responsibility, it, it effectively means that you are not obliged to be 100% kind of profit or shareholder focused. Yeah. Yes. And therefore, you, you know, to keep your B Corp status, you have to consider multiple stakeholders. Yes, correct. So we had to change our governance documents to say that we operate not only for profit, but for people and the planet. Got it. And so I, I, if I'm right, I think the B Corp started in the US and there was a company making in some ways, kind of ethical clothing, which also was fairly benign towards its own employees. And they were forced to sell because as shareholders, they were obliged to take this purchase offer, knowing that the purchaser would kind of destroy the brand. And they realized there was nothing they could do about this. And so one of the things is that it enables you, if you wish to exit, um, it places obligations on the person who buys you not to turn what is effectively a multifaceted, multi-stakeholder organization into a narrow kind of shareholder-only, um, shareholder-value-focused organization. Yeah, correct. And so it's a kind of it, – it, it's wonderful for people who, who, wish, who might wish to exit but don't wish to see their life's work destroyed. Yeah. By quite often, what happens, by the way, is people pursue this shareholder value thing, and um, uh, unsurprisingly, perhaps the customers notice. <laughs> okay, um, and so it isn't necessarily even good business, but it's kind of particularly in the Anglo-Saxon world, it's a it's a kind of obligation of any board member to look to the shareholder interest first. Um, that strikes me as fundamentally intellectually incoherent by the way because which shareholder over which time frame should you be considering it doesn't strike me it looks very very clear-cut and single-minded but actually when you delve a bit deeper you realize that it's actually you know effectively it's clarity achieved at the price of nuance and subtlety and you know it's not even clear do you mean the short-term shareholder interest the five-year shareholder interest uh it's it's actually it actually raises more questions than it answers, to be absolutely honest. Um, but I, but I, I'm I, I'm fairly sure my superhero is also a B Corp, and it's increasingly common in the, funnily enough in this area of food innovation, which fascinates me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We have... We have a regular podcast feature, by the way, called the Top Two Challenges. And there's even a jingle for it, which I think someone's going to play now. Top Two Challenges, brought to you by Alf Insights. Alf Insight helps media owners, agencies, and marketing service providers improve their new business pipelines by equipping them with in-depth insights, accurate information, and daily news updates on the leading and challenger brands in the UK. Alf now also helps sports clubs, venues, and charities with new partnership deals. Alf Insight identifies the brands to target at the right time, providing everything you need to tailor the perfect pitch. Visit Alf Insight, that's ALFinsight.com, or click the link in the episode description to find out more. The first question is, what would you say is the biggest challenge for Oddbox, and what's the most pressing challenge for the grocery industry as a whole? Uh, in your opinion. So the first question is uh, the, the, the top challenge for Oddbox itself. Is it simple growth? Do you have the potential to grow? Are there pretty good uh, you know, gains to scale when you grow? Um, or, is, or is it supply? What, what's the constraint? Um, so right now, we don't have any constraint on supplies. The biggest challenge is um, consumers are driven by convenience and we've seen a lot of uh, startups so ultra fast delivery startups where you can get everything you want delivered to you within uh, 15 minutes we're asking people to uh, behave in a completely different way. We believe that uh, people should cook based on what's available, what uh, they have in their cupboard, what they receive from their hot box. And so it's quite a change in behavior. So we call that grower-led cooking and grower-led eating, um, which is cooking based on what's, uh, what's available. And that goes against a lot of the trends. That goes against uh, the trend of uh, increased convenience. And so for us, that's our biggest challenge in terms of how do we um, move people towards that uh, whilst understanding that, uh, uh, and that's why we need to make our proposition a bit more um, convenient, where people can partially choose what comes in their hotbox from a bigger selection to get them on that journey to then uh, being confident to uh, always cook with what's in their fridge. Yes, so I mean, uh, I suppose Britain, a very interesting thing is Britain by industrialising very, very early 
and urbanizing very, very early. So uh, I, I think if I'm right, the figure is that in 1850, the majority of the British population lived in cities or large towns. Uh, that was 1850 in the UK. That figure was reached in the United States in 1920, and it was reached in France in 1950. So France until, you know, immediate post-war France was still, you know, a majority kind of rural um, area. So that whole idea of seasonality, uh, which probably still retains some meaning in yeah. France and Italy. I mean, we we, we have, you know, we've been disconnected mm. from uh, agriculture as a population, mm. really, which probably explains why for a long time the food was so bad. You know, we, you know in other words, what you might call peasant or rural knowledge mm. just got completely yes. lost uh, with, with fairly early urbanisation. Yeah. And um, uh, it's it's interesting because uh, you know you know when, when you read when you read earlier sort of nineteenth century writing, uh, you notice that you know patently you know there was great excitement about food mm. coming into season and and going out of season again, and um, uh, and, uh, and strawberries that business of strawberries in the winter which actually I can date it because I was at university when it first happened and it was Marks and Spencer's mm. who did it first. And I think they flew stuff in from Chile, yeah. if I'm mm. right, um, uh, at the time. I mean, that, that, that was pretty, pretty weird in, um, uh, in, in 1989. It would have been about 1987. It first appeared uh, in our local M&S, I think. And um, uh now, since then, of course, there's a whole generation of people who don't even realize that strawberries cut a seed. Yeah, that's what it's we just... don't. Uh, people uh, people yeah. don't know because it's there uh, in uh, in the retailer's shelves. So there's that notion of seasonality, that notion of what's grown in the UK is kind of lost. It's difficult when you live in a city to know uh, what's in season. And even people think about local and there's uh, they have that notion that you can get a lot of of things within 30 kilometers from where you live. Uh, actually, uh, a lot of produce are grown in specific regions of the UK, uh, and you can't get so Kent is really good for fruits, um, potatoes, and kind of all the brassicas, so the cabbages uh, are um, more in the north. So there's specific soil good for specific produce. So yeah, it's very difficult to kind of uh, have a very diet if you only want things which are grown within 30 kilometers from where you live. Of course, weirdly, um, a lot of the UK's raspberries come from Scotland, which yeah. seems unusual, but that seems to be the case for ages. In fairness, actually, I think we ought to be we ought to be clear about this. There's a debate about flying in fruit and vegetables in terms of food miles. I think the food miles debate. Um, uh, as far as land transportation goes, is actually a bit silly. Yeah, just as an example, uh, one kilo of potatoes uh, requires 300 litres of water. That's the equivalent of three chars, in addition to all the labours, the land use, and potatoes take nothing to grow. So uh, the environmental impact of food waste is so much higher uh, or the environmental impact of growing food is 25% of all uh, greenhouse gas emission. Uh, and the impact of uh, transporting food is very little 
com uh, compared to that, especially if it comes through land or sea. Uh, air flying is bad, but uh, uh, land or sea threat uh, has kind of quite a low carbon footprint. Because actually, uh, okay, I think what happens is people don't understand the network effect. Yeah. And obviously, if someone... Uh, you know, drove from Scotland with a punnet of strawberries. Okay, that would you know that would be an appalling kind of carbon footprint in terms of uh, of raspberries, rather in terms of each raspberry. But obviously, it doesn't work like that. And if you consider the volume that can be transported by road or by sea, then uh, the number of actual incremental miles per raspberry on a mass yes. shipment is absolutely yes. minuscule. Mm. And so it's completely wrong, I think, to make that a mm. consideration uh, when there are far more important considerations like not growing food in inappropriate places. Yeah. And, and uh, for, for example, instance, actually, uh, so uh, going back to the tomatoes, growing tomatoes in the UK needs to be in uh, greenhouses. Growing tomatoes in Spain uh, is can be outdoors and the uh, uh, the Kind of energy requirement to grow them in the UK is a lot higher than the um, uh, fuel usage to transport them from Spain to the UK. So the, the way to think of it is that Spanish tomatoes are solar powered yeah. and you are actually importing solar energy yeah. in a sense. Okay. Whereas if we need to use, effectively, we need to use electricity to heat polytunnels yes. or, um, uh, or, or other forms of... Um, uh, artificial growing, then you're absolutely right. Yeah, the transportation cost is absolutely trivial um, compared to the uh, artificial energy cost. So, uh, and this is one of the problems, which is, are, are you principally do you, do you have do you wait towards organic vegetables or fruit, or are you not? No, bothered? we don't. And uh, um, so we we work with any type of uh, produce growers. Uh, so we'll sometimes have some organic, but because it's mixed with con conventional produce, we can't really call it uh, organic. Uh, and that's why organic is always packaged, because if it touches conventional, it can't be called organic anymore. I mean, I would have thought the point of organic food is that you eat organic. I thought the idea that you become kind of tainted by contact <laughs> with anything else. That strikes me as a rather kind of extreme level of purity. Yeah. And and me. there's a lot of confusion yeah. about organic. So people don't really know. So obviously, uh, organic producers still use uh, kind of sprays and fertilizers but that's organic certified uh, fertilizers so there's there's yeah. a lot of confusion on um, uh, the value of organic uh, in mainland europe there's a much bigger push from the government towards organic in the uk it's not been the case and so for us uh, we're we're about food waste food waste is a lot clearer in terms of food is grown it shouldn't be wasted when we don't have enough resources to uh, feed uh, every, all the people on the planet, then let's at least uh, yes. eat what we've grown. So that's kind of a, a lot more simpler to understand uh, than than organic. And that's why uh, people buy out box because they think that uh, by tackling food waste, they do something good for the planet. Which they do, yes. by the way. I mean, I, 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 and actually, in a way, the very high figure of food waste when we when it was first presented to us, I said actually the way to look at that is not with horror but with optimism, because it suggests that actually if we're just a bit more intelligent or a bit more discriminating or we educate people better, 
there's the potential to feed far more people for no more yes. money. Uh, so uh, we, you know, we shouldn't despair at that figure. We should look at it as an opportunity for improvement, and actually, you know, uh, in some ways, be quite optimistic about it. There are some odd. I mean, this is where it becomes very difficult, which is the whole concept of what is worthy and good for the planet. Um, sometimes it goes with people's natural instincts, but sometimes, as with food miles. Uh, the reality is completely different. I mean, one of the strange things I've learned is that composting is really rather bad because it produces a lot of methane, whereas waste disposal units, which seem like a complete American indulgence, are actually, if you have to get rid of, for example, peelings or other organic matter, it's better to put them down a waste disposal unit than it is to compost them in the garden. Um and so quite a lot of what is environmentally beneficial runs counter to our natural instincts. Yeah, it's quite un unclear. The, uh, uh, so the whole area of sustainability um, is, com is complex. Uh, it's got mm. lots of different streams and, and uh, all of us are a bit confused in terms of uh, what we should be doing and it's, uh, it changes as well. So uh, food waste is the only thing that uh, it's very clear cut in terms of uh, we all know we shouldn't waste food when it's been produced. So the, the other question is uh, in terms of the second challenge, um, uh, um, what do you think the big challenges for the grocery industry as a whole uh, particularly around waste. Do you think there's an education challenge where people become less obsessed with the uh, kind of perfection of appearance of food? Uh, do you think there are? Um, uh, do you think we we actually need to basically get people back to being used to seasonality? Yeah, we. I think we do. Um, I think also on the grower side, um, retailers have a role to play in. Uh, driving more reporting on the amount of waste which happens at farm level. So there's very little understanding of how much waste happens at uh, at farm level with suppliers, and um, and that's the first step. So we need to know, we need to get the data, we need to understand why it happens, where it happens, uh, and uh, and the reasons it happens, and. Um, and for retailers to work in partnership with their suppliers to reduce that amount and to promote uh, more of the seasonal produce when there's flushes. Uh, that's that's fantastic. I uh, I mean all the, I mean there may be other practices which I mean I, I remember working at a as a forklift truck driver at the Ribena factory in Colford mm -hmm. back in the eighties, and it was noted that all the fruit suppliers used to spray the fruit with water before it set off because you get a better price because it made it heavier. <laughs> now, those are the kind of practices that we need to, you know, in other words, you know, it, it patently is of no one's benefit, actually, uh, just transporting water around the mm -hmm. country in that shape or form, but they found it worthwhile. That's the kind of thing, and this used to happen, by the way, with uh, crisp manufacturers, mm -hmm. that, that the potatoes were sprayed with water, and, of course, the big energy cost of making potato crisps is, is drying them out mm -hmm. again. So you effectively had the organization was acting at loggerheads with its own suppliers. Um, and so that, you know, better better intelligent cooperation there can make a very big difference. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't know where the I don't know where the market's going to go entirely. But if you take the sudden profusion, particularly since lockdown, and I'm assuming that during lockdown, you had a particularly good two yes. years. 
How, how are you finding supplies now, now that supermarket shelves are quite often empty? Are you, are you having difficulty getting hold of vegetables? What, what's, the, what's the principal cause? Because it's, it's a mixture of kind of climatic and, uh, and other factors, isn't it? Is that right? Yes, yeah, there's a lot of different factors. So uh, obviously we've had a very hot and dry summer. Then we had yeah. uh, uh, a cold spell. Uh, in the winter, there's been a lot of floods uh, in Southern Europe. So uh, that's created uh, challenges in terms of supply. Um, what, so uh, now there's, everybody's talking about uh, tomatoes. So uh, we used to grow more tomatoes in the UK a few years ago, but tomatoes in the UK are all uh, grown in greenhouse, uh, uh, in um, uh, in uh, in green uh, houses and um, and that requires a lot of energy and therefore the cost of growing tomatoes in the UK has uh, increased a lot and retailers haven't necessarily been willing to pay more for UK tomatoes and are a lot therefore a lot of uh, tomato businesses have gone uh, out of business. Uh, over the past uh, over the past year in the UK, and so we're more dependent on uh, imports from Southern Europe, and um, uh, everything works on contract. Uh, it's also become more expensive for uh, growers in Spain, in Morocco, to grow the tomatoes, and retailers haven't been willing to pay for that because there's no shortages uh, in France, in Germany, because they've adjusted the price. So it's uh, food. Food is too cheap in the UK. Yeah, it's <coughs> funny you say that because it occurred to me that it wouldn't, uh, you know, given that these things are substitutable, it's not as if people are going to be starving to death, yeah. but it's simply limiting their diet. It's not a totally unhealthy thing for consumers to learn that these things aren't always abundantly yeah. available at a low price and that actually we're part of a global system mm. where there are knock-on effects. Um, it, it's strange because we always think of the German retailers as being hyper price sensitive and very, very, um, you know, very, very low margin. But they, they've just hiked the prices and people have accepted them. Yes. And uh, actually, the, uh, the UK is the most competitive grocery environment, even more yeah. than the US, even more than anywhere else. Yeah, we have we have something like an insane amount of certainly insane amount of uh, floor space uh, devoted to grocery retailing relative to the population, and um, yeah, I suppose you're right. It is actually hyper competitive, isn't it? So you've got um, uh, you've got two two German players, one small Dutch player. You've also got what you've got as you've got as the Tesco, Sainsbury's, all at scale, plus local providers, plus farmers markets. So. yeah, it's uh, it's going to be it, it it is going to be pretty competitive, but but I mean it seems a bit weird because in certain cases consumers I would have thought would be fairly happy to pay the premium, um, but um, it might be a case where the retailers have misjudged their customers. In fact, um, but uh, I can understand the retailer concern, is which is they don't want to become accused of price gouging. Yeah, I think so. Uh, so it's. Uh... 
it's funny because then they're squeezing the suppliers and uh, suppliers are saying uh, we're not, uh, we can't operate uh, with such tight prices. And we've seen kind of some of the big FMCG brands uh, having fights with retailers and withdrawing some of their products from the shelves for a few weeks. Uh, and at the same time, then um, there's Uh, governmental institution saying that uh, food is uh, is too expensive and people can't afford food. But as a proportion of uh, their inc their the household income, food in the UK is a, a much smaller proportion compared to what it is in other countries. So we are not spending yes, a lot I'm of not... money on on food in the UK. But consumers are very are very remember, price sensitive. Uh, uh, uh... In my childhood, um, I seem to remember that the average French family spent more than double the proportion of income on food that the average English family did. Now, that's probably changed. That was when I was kind of 10 or 11. Um, uh, that's probably changed, but uh, a little bit as, as Britain's become more foodie. But that's interesting because... Um, uh, uh, You could argue that even if we have fairly dramatic food price hikes, then the proportion that Brits spend on food would still be, you know, probably below the certainly below the Southern European yeah. average. Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's in, that's very, very interesting. Um, we probably do we spend more on eating out. I was just wondering because that's oh, that's another consideration, which is you know, um, in, in the United States, the amount spent eating out. Uh, now exceeds the amount spent eating at home. Yes, there's a lot of takeaways. That, that includes, that, that includes yeah. fast yeah. food, takeaways, and everything else. But actually, the US reached a point about five years ago where the average American household spent more eating either out of home or food prepared out of home uh, than they did actually um, on eating at home. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Um, I mean, that's kind of an extraordinary mm -hmm. trend in the sense that, you know, when I, I, I wasn't, Part of it. we weren't particularly impoverished by any means, but you know, when I was a child, we probably ate out four times a year or something of that kind, and so that's a, that's another change. But what's interesting is this. I think this counter change of uh, of quality cooking at home and people actually becoming more and more interested. Yeah, and we've seen that obviously COVID has helped with that trend. People were at home. There was everybody yeah. was baking uh, and making their yeah. own bread during COVID. Now we're seeing that going back to pre-COVID uh, behaviors, where um, uh, last year there was a peak in people traveling and pe people eating out. But I think we'll uh, see that switching back a bit more in terms of uh, it's a lot healthier to cook at home. Yes. I, I think there was an element post-COVID, and you saw the same thing with international yes. travel. There was an element of people making up for yes. lost time, and if you like, kind of almost overcompensating yeah. to a degree. Um, and I think, I mean, one of the lessons of COVID probably was that uh, we've been neglecting simple pleasures, mm -hmm. and that one of the things a lot of people discovered during COVID is how much they enjoyed, as you said, you know, relatively simple things like baking provided you have the discretionary time, uh, are really quite a large source of happiness. Yeah. And I wouldn't expect that lesson to be completely lost on us. You never know. Um, but, um, uh, you know, some people at least must, there must be some degree of stickiness. I mean, the crowdfunding campaign, if I'm right, um, uh, closed at the end of February. Yes. How did your crowdfunding go? We had 
amazing uh, uh, results from the crowdfunding campaign. Lots of, so over 2,500 people uh, participated in the crowdfunding. And so we knew we've got a very engaged community. Uh, we knew that uh, people wanted to do more to support our journey. And so, uh, yes, we've had uh, amazing results and uh, so many people join us. And what do you plan to do with the money? So uh, we're uh, looking at expanding our range. So uh, food waste doesn't happen only with uh, produce. There's uh, food waste across the whole food chain. So a lot of uh, brands that we all buy uh, have surplus stock, have packaging issues, have um, uh, slightly short-dated products. So for example, we've worked with uh, Caravan Coffee, uh, who have used some of the beans which were slightly um, uh, short-dated to make some uh, coffee for uh, in partnership with Outbox that we're selling through our boxes. We've worked with Montezuma Chocolate who've repackaged broken slabs of chocolate that we sell through our boxes. And we work with a lot of different brands to uh, help support them when they have surplus stock. So that's one of the things. As I mentioned, a lot of people um, sometimes struggle with getting a box and getting produce that they've never cooked before. So a big cabbage, uh, when you've never cooked cabbage, is a challenge. So uh, we're going to introduce uh, some element of customization uh, so that uh, people can swap cabbage with something else um, uh, to make it a bit easier for everyone to join Notbox. Interesting. Well, one of the things I'd like to teach the British to do, actually Europeans to do, is to make American-style salads as well, because I think the, the, you know, the European or British salad is an exercise in self-denial to some extent. And actually, one of the things I noticed when I go to the United States, bizarrely, is after about day three, I actually eat more healthily because a salad actually constitutes a proper meal. Um, so, I mean, that's, you know, that's another thing. And, and also also the, the idea that frying is unhealthy. I remember having a debate about this, saying that one thing about the Saturday fry-up is it's pretty good at getting rid of food waste because, you you know, the frying pan is a place where you can experiment with uh, pretty interesting combinations. Yeah, there's lots of ways. So soups, stews, curries. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can basically put pretty much any vegetables. Uh, but quite often, uh, people uh, are a bit worried or don't know or have, don't have the confidence to kind of, uh, do that. What's your best acquisition medium without giving away any trade secrets? Uh, do you use door drops? I know you've used TV, um, some outdoor radio. Uh, direct mail and digital, obviously, which makes sense. Um, uh, which is your best, uh, or in terms of volume and um, effectiveness, not just efficiency, uh, where have you had the best results? So I think it's changed over time. So at the start, we were doing quite a lot of local fairs and markets just to uh, uh, explain what Oddbox was, showcase the box. We've done a lot of door-to-door leafletting. That's worked really well um, in terms of being quite uh, targeted. Initially, we started on in London. So we, need, we needed an acquisition channel which uh, where we could uh, target people uh, where we were able to deliver. So door drop is amazing for that. We've done quite a lot of digital referrals has been 
one of our best channel as well, just word of mouth, people talking to their friends and their neighbors uh, about Outbox and in some ways that's kind of probably the best way to uh, to grow a brand and get people to uh, hear from their friends um, about a product. Oh, tremendous. So what's next? Um, is it uh, geographical expansion, um, new channels, uh, what's the what's the experiment or the um, uh, if you like the expansion plan that uh, uh, that, that appeals to you most? Yes, so we now cover uh, close to seventy percent of the UK. So there's a bit more that we can do in terms of uh, geo expansion. Um, we'll be looking at uh, expanding. Uh, to other countries in mainland Europe, but that's more planned for uh, in the next uh, two to three years. Right now, our focus is on on the UK. Um, uh, we're also excitingly launching uh, Outbox branded products. So we've partnered with one of our Apple growers uh, who uh, created a new breed of Apple called the Lilibet for the Queen's Jubilee. Uh, the uh, for one of the retailers, that retailer decided not to take the old crop. And so that grower was left with tons of apples uh, that he couldn't sell. We've put quite a few of them in our boxes and we've now pressed uh, some of these apples into uh, an apple juice. So we've got an Outbox branded apple juice that we are going to be uh, selling in our boxes uh, in the next few weeks. And there's lots of opportunities for uh, products made with rescued produce. We've got uh, access to a lot of different suppliers. So for us, that's a a very exciting opportunity. I suppose there is the opportunity to take the brand into physical retail. So that's something that uh, we can test products in our boxes and then create uh, uh, branded products that we sell through other channels. I think what's really worthwhile about this is not only is what, what you're doing, you know, uncontestably a good thing, and as you say, it's a win-win, but more than that, it's actually readily comprehensible to the public. Because yes. as we were saying earlier, there are so many of these things where actually the environmental thing to do is slightly counterintuitive or unexpected. And here is something which I think people can immediately grasp, which is, in other words, I get interesting stuff at a fair price yep. uh, that's uh, you know genuinely tasty because it's the stuff that the... Um, uh, you know, re- retailers are too anal to take and display on their shelves. And it's such an obvious kind of, you know, the whole idea of offcuts, yeah. as it were, or bin ends is immediately comprehensible to the customer. So I think that's absolutely tremendous. Well, what I can say is, Emily, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. You've been listening to On Brand with Alf and Rory Sutherland. If you want to do business with Odd Box or any other grocery brand, just contact the Alf Insight team on their website, which is www.alfinsight.com. That's A-L-F-I-N-S-I-G-H-T.com. Uh, if you want, of course, to sign up to Oddbox, uh, there's a special sign-up code ALF, A-L-F, uh, which will get you 50% off your first box. You can also find the link in the episode description. This series, as ever, is produced and edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, then do us to tidy and give us a like. Thanks for listening, and here's to next time. Hold up. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.